Well, good morning. It's good to see you all today. It's good to be with you. We need to start our time today with a very important question. Somebody already laughed. That's not a good sign. When does a joke become a dad joke? When it becomes a parent. Have you ever considered the brilliance of the dad joke? Have you ever considered it? The ability to make words combine in the perfect balance of ridiculous and brilliance. The ability to look at your child who comes to you and says, Dad, I'm thirsty. Well, hello, thirsty. My name is Dad. You know what I'm talking about. I personally am a huge fan of dad jokes. I read them. I watch Facebook reels about them. I tell them frequently, maybe a little too frequently. But you know what would be a real shame? If the only impact I had in my family's life was just a bunch of jokes. I'm so happy to be here today talking about God's Word on Father's Day. I'm personally thankful for my father. My father's now a member of our church, and and he goes to the family service every single week. But my father taught me so many valuable lessons as I went through my life. Through his faithful service in the church and as a chaplain within the prison system, he taught me the importance of passionately serving others because Christ came to serve, not to be served. Through his approach to life that ensured that everyone else was taken care of before he thought about himself, he taught me the importance of viewing others as more important than yourself. And through his faithfulness to study God's Word, he taught me that there's never a point in time when you will no longer need to be dependent on the Word of God. Through His compassion towards me during my failures, He taught me that God stands ready to forgive those who will confess their sins. And through His response to those who were cruel to Him, He taught me the importance of placing your identity in Christ and not in others' opinions. My dad was and is the most influential man in my life. I pray to be a dad like him for all of my days as a father. You know, today, fathers, we're going to turn our attention to you a bit today. And I hope that today you're here and you're not using your position as a father to build yourself up, but rather to serve others. I hope that you're spending your time as a father not on the meaningless pursuits of pleasure, but rather on eternal things. And I hope this morning you'll consider if you're actively pursuing a godly life. Now, sometimes on days like Father's Day, you might be here and you might say, well, I'm not a father, so I can just turn off my attention and I don't have to pay attention to what we're talking about. But the passage of Scripture and what we're talking about today will give lots of applications in your life as well. So I hope that you will follow along with us as we study today. Our church's theme this year is hope for everyday life. We've learned so far this year after studying the book of 1 Peter that regardless of the trials and testing we might face in life, that we can still be filled with hope. We, we see this hope because of what Christ did for us on the cross. And as a result of that, we respond to the attacks of life. We respond to the trials of life in a way that ultimately points towards that hope. And after we transition out of that study on 1 Peter, we've started a series based on the first seven verses of 2 Peter, and that is on the fruit that we're supposed to be growing, or or hope for fruitful service. We've discussed the last couple of weeks the need to have moral excellence, and then we talked about last week the need to have 
knowledge that is applied to our daily lives. We saw that there was an opposite to moral excellence. That opposite was compromise. And then we saw that there was an opposite to living a life of knowledge, and that opposite was hypocrisy. So would you take your Bibles now and turn with me? We're going to start, we're going to go to two different passages today. So go with me, first of all, to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is our main passage for our series this summer. That's page 183 of the back section of the Bible located under the chair in front of you. This morning we're going to be talking about growing in the fruit of godliness. Let's read 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 1 through 7. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Today we're jumping ahead to the fruit of godliness. We'll come back and get the other topics, but we thought this is an important topic for us to consider today on Father's Day because a successful dad is a dad who is going to be trying to be more and more like God. There's incredible applications here today. There's been a lot written about the need to pursue godliness in the Bible. I want you to consider some of these passages before we dive in to our main passage. 1 Timothy 4, 7-8 through 8 says this, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. See, the idea of disciplining yourself for godliness brings to mind the realization that the pursuit of godliness requires a resolute decision that will continue on even when life gets hard. So we have to be disciplined for the purpose of godliness. Look with me at 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. It says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. This verse reminds us that in order to pursue godliness, there are certain things that you have to run from. We understand that in life, if you want to be disciplined with your diet, you have to run away from Golden Corral, right? Like, and not after you ate there, right? Like, like you, you have to leave, right? You have to get out of there. Well, if you want to be disciplined to godliness, you need to run from the things that are contrary to godliness. Titus 2 uh, 11 and 12 say this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. What is the opposite of godliness according to this verse? Well, it's this ungodliness and worldly desires. The opposite of godliness is worldliness. Now, 
Before we get too far in our time together today, we need to consider what we're talking about when we say the word godliness. So let's define godliness. The Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology defines godliness as a reverence for God and a life of holiness in this world. It's a reverence for God and a life of holiness in this world. What an incredible calling for each and every one of us. To have so much reverence for God that we would choose to live life in a holy way. The verses that we just read were all written by the Apostle Paul. We believe the Apostle Paul serves as a great example for us to consider the fruit of godliness. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me now to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. You can find that on page 155 of the back section of the Bible under the chair in front of you. Now as we turn there, I want us to consider some of the reasons that the Apostle Paul is a great example for us to consider when we think about growing in the fruit of godliness. There had been a major change that happened in the Apostle Paul's life. The Apostle Paul was knowing for ravaging the church, Galatians 1, 13-14, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. So, so what do we know about Paul? We know this. He was so sold on Judaism that he was actively seeking to destroy those who were followers of Christ because they were ultimately enemies of Judaism. So Paul set out to destroy the churches that were faithful to the teachings of Christ. But, but then he was knocked down by the Holy Spirit and he was shown that he was pers- what he was pursuing was not right and he immediately changed his passions. So much so that many within the churches began to question his sincerity. Look at Galatians 1, 22 through 23. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us now pre- is now preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy. What was happening? There was confusion here. Like this guy has a reputation as wanting to destroy the churches, and then now he's trying to come to our church, and he's trying to preach in our church. Like, can you imagine the confusion that's going on there? In the end, though, his conversion was so amazing that the people couldn't help but be amazed by his transformation. Look at Galatians 1.24, and they were glorifying God because of me. Now, as we read more about the Apostle Paul, we see he was so passionate about the things of the Lord. He went from being passionate about trying to destroy the church to now being passionate about the things of the Lord, so much so that he would say that it would be better for him to ultimately die and be with Christ. But as long as he lived, he would live for Christ. Philippians 1.21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So let's read now Philippians 3, 1 through 21, and let's look for three actions of making every effort to add to your saving faith godliness. I'll start in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. 
I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ." It may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus." Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who have who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Now, let's think about these three action steps to grow in godliness. First of all, we have to establish a proper view of God's plan of salvation. As we talked about in the introduction, the Apostle Paul was very familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. He was not just a scholar that had some understanding of what was there. He was a man that was motivated to live his life by every detail in a way to be consistent with all of the laws, all of the rituals, and all of the religious practices. But what Paul was missing was the fact that he could never live his life perfectly enough to actually achieve righteousness because of his works. That is until God got a hold of his heart and made it clear. Let's consider what Paul believed. But Paul's beliefs had to change. He had to recognize that even though he was trying his hardest to appease God, he was still fundamentally a sinner. He had to recognize that even in his zeal, he was still an enemy of Christ. Let's consider this fact. We began as Christ's enemies. Friends, you may not be as much of a scholar about the law as Paul was. You might not be actively seeking to obliterate all who hold different views of the teachings you hold dear to. But that's where the Apostle Paul was. Philippians 3, verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. One of the first things we all need to recognize is this fact. Regardless of the sincerity of your belief, if you start with the wrong interpretation of your status before God without Christ, then you are hopeless. Paul was literally on his way to persecute the church because of his sincerity. 
when God knocked him to the ground in Acts chapter 9, and he said to him, why are you persecuting me? We know that story probably. Can you imagine Paul's thought process? He's cruising along with the soldiers and those who would have been with him on his way to destroy this church. And all of a sudden, a light comes out of the heavens. And like his first thought, it was probably, whoa, that light is really bright. And then how in the world did I end up here on the ground? I, I can't see anything. Who's talking to me? Is that God? He's, he's probably coming to tell me, good job for taking out all of these churches. Wait, did he just say, I'm persecuting him? Who is that? And God replied to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He told him to get up and go to the city and it will be told you what you must do. Can you imagine Paul's thoughts there? Wait, Jesus is God? Everything I have lived my life for is wrong. I've been persecuting the very one I should be worshiping. Now, I hope today we don't have any active church persecutors in our midst. However, I can imagine that there are people here who have a religious zeal, but for the wrong things. I can imagine that there are sincere people here who have never considered that the very foundations of their faith are built on the wrong God. I can imagine that there are people here who think that they do not need to have a saving relationship with Christ. Let me encourage you to examine your own life for a minute. Do you see yourself as a good person? Do you judge yourself on a scale of good deeds versus bad deeds? Do you seek to minimize the seriousness of needing to have a personal relationship with Christ? Let me be clear so all of us can hear this. Without receiving the free gift of salvation as offered by Christ, you cannot help but be an enemy of the cross. You can do all the works in the world you want to, but ultimately your works are not enough. Have you ever caught yourself writing your spiritual resume? I'm a pretty good guy. No one has ever actually seen me in a bad mood. In fact, I'm such a good guy that this morning I got a coffee cup that says I am the number one dad. (laughs) And look at me. Here I am in church today. I might not be perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as my neighbor. You know, Paul had quite a resume as well. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was an Israelite. He was a Benjamite. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Regarding the law, he was blameless. Basically, here's what it would be. He would have been on the cover of Pharisaism today. Like, that was him. This guy had it going. However, he quickly realized that he wasn't good enough. Philippians 3, 7 Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss. The old way of thinking had to be changed. From if I try hard enough, I can be good enough, to my works can never be enough. Now, if the understanding of the gospel stopped there, we'd be in a pretty hopeless place. But Paul quickly points out this fact. The cross 
is a sufficient payment. Look at verses 8 and 9. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. In other words, the only possibility to ever be made righteous is found at the cross. And I'm so thankful for that truth. You know, because of that truth, every single one of us in this room have the same exact opportunity to be made right with God. It's not based on your abilities. It's not something that the pastors have a head start on. No, all of us have to recognize that we are dead in our sins. We must recognize that none of our good deeds will ever be enough. So thank God for the gift of salvation. If by faith we will repent of our sin and turn to Him, we can be reconciled to God. Now let me say this today. If you're here and you're struggling with whether or not you've accepted Christ as your Savior, today could be the day that you're restored in a relationship with your Heavenly Father. So we need to consider what Paul believed, and we need to have our life transformed like Paul's life was transformed, but we also need to fix our eyes on what is eternal. Notice Paul goes here next in his thoughts about transformation. Verses 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. One of my favorite hobbies in life is mowing the yard. I love to mow the lawn. And I think I developed my love for mowing the lawn from my father. There's just something satisfying about looking at a lawn that is freshly mowed and you can see all of the lines that are perfectly put into the lawn. But I remember when I was a kid learning how to mow, I wasn't quite so good at doing those lines. And my dad had to teach me a few lessons on how to mow in perfectly straight lines. The first few times I mowed, he'd come back and help me make a few adjustments to help me do better the next time. But one of the things about mowing that I was especially bad at was mowing in a straight line and not leaving little lines where the grass was left to grow. You know what I'm talking about? You ever seen that happen before? Maybe your neighbor, okay? Like, but, but that would happen. All right, now. This was a struggle for quite a while until finally my dad taught me the importance of something. The importance of fixing your eyes on a set point at the end of your line and going straight to it. Keep your eyes fixed on that. If your eyes start wavering all over the place, you'll have lines that go all over the place. If you mow looking at your feet, you'll have no idea when you run into a tree or a sibling or whatever. Like You've got to keep your eyes focused ahead. If you let your eyes be distracted by everything around you, then you can't possibly mow in a straight line. Friends, the same is true for us spiritually. You have to keep your eyes focused on the eternal things. You can't get lost in the worry of the moments surrounding you right then and there. You can't get lost in all the distractions that are all over the place. You have to have a singular focus on living a life that is for eternity. If you've been restored to a proper relationship with God because of your own salvation, we're now to be living with eternity in perspective. So how do I live out my eternal focus here on earth? Well, first of all, by making every effort to add to your salvation 
godliness. Paul didn't stop with having just a proper view of salvation. In fact, he made his whole life about what? Well, pursuing Christ above all. Have you ever noticed how many things we pursue in life? I am in pursuit of making the perfect brisket. I believe it can be achieved. Or I'm in pursuit of playing the best round of golf. I believe that may not be achieved. I'm in pursuit of catching the fish of a lifetime. Although I don't ever go fishing anymore. Maybe I'm in pursuit of just getting my kids through school each and every year. I'm not going to say that those things are necessarily wrong pursuits, but we must check all of them with the appropriate ultimate pursuit. So ultimately, what do we need to pursuing? First of all, we need to be pursuing or seeking to know Christ. How do I continue to live life with that focus on eternity that we're told to focus on? How do I ultimately know how to live with godliness? Well, it starts by knowing God and Jesus Christ who was sent by God. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. How do you get to know someone more? You spend time with them. You listen when they talk. You're actually interested in what they have to say. You intentionally create time to be able to learn more about them. So how do I know Christ more? Well, I spend time with him in his word. I think through life and try to apply his word in a consistent way to what he says. I study how he wants me to live my life. And I realize that he has given us what we need to be able to live a life defined by godliness, 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Like, He didn't just call you to live a life of godliness. He gave you an instruction manual on how to do it. It's not like you're trying to assemble furniture from some furniture store that also sells meatballs. Like, there's actually instructions there that tell you how to put it together. There's a plan to live a life of godliness, and it's found in the Word of God. So how can you expect to live a godly life if you're not seeking to understand how God intends you to live your life? Dads, the biggest key to being an effective father is found by being a father who is constantly seeking to know Christ. Your family doesn't need you to be the incredible hulk as much as they need you to be consistently drawing closer to Christ. Your family doesn't need you to be a grill master as much as they need you to be consistently drawing closer to Christ. Your family doesn't need your dad jokes as much as they need you to be consistently drawing closer to Christ. I believe that so many of us in this room have a lot of room to improve on the seriousness with which we approach our relationship with Christ. Now, as you seek to know Christ, it should lead you to value Christ's purpose in your life. One of these purposes is to stop living as though you have no relationship with Christ and to start living in a godly way. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. 
You know, one of the concepts that is lost on many of us in a comfortable American lifestyle is the idea of denying yourself something. We have adopted as a culture a have-it-your-way-right-away approach to life. I mean, we have everything right at our fingertips, right? If you're hungry, what do you do? Pull out your phone and order some food and deliver it to you at whatever time you ask them to deliver it to you. If you're bored, what do you do? Watch a movie on your phone. If you want to escape reality, what do you do? Play Pokemon Go. Like, whatever, maybe you don't know Pokemon Go, but there's a lot of people who do. Like, we really have found the way to do whatever it is whenever we want to do it. You know, on some levels, some of these things are fine. It's okay to order food from your phone. But what happens if you order too much food too many times at every desire you have to eat? Well, there will be consequences. What happens if you watch too many movies on your phone? Well, there will be consequences. Friends, spiritually, though, it's important for us not to give in to every impulse and desire of our flesh. It's important for us not to consume whatever junk we naturally want to consume. It's important for us to put our phones down and engage with intentionality with those who God has placed in our lives. So how do I deny ungodliness and worldly desires? First of all, I recognize which things in life are leading me away from a relationship with Christ that I should be desiring. So first, I recognize it. I see what it is. Secondly, Because I'm seeking to be closer to Christ, I recognize the things that are in opposition to what Christ would want me to pursue. I see them. I recognize them now as an enemy. Now, thirdly, I decide that the things of Christ are of more value than the temporary pleasures of that decision. And fourth, this might be the hardest one, I say no to those desires. And then fifth, I pursue godliness. I run after the things of Christ. I keep my focus on eternity. Friend, pursue Christ. First, by seeking to know Christ. And second, by valuing Christ's purpose in your life. And then, allow Christ to change you. How do I become more like Christ? How do you become more like Christ? You have to let Him change you. Verses 15 and 16, let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. There are points in parenting where you're looking less for your kids to tell you that they understand the correction you're providing them and more evidence that they actually have changed. There are points in your job when the boss is looking less for a for a verbal commitment to change and more of an evidence of that change. There are points on January 2nd when your fitness goals need more than for you to say that you're going to work out five times a week and need more evidence that that's actually going to be real, right? You don't change just because you say you want to change. You change because you actually begin to change. I believe many of us in this room would say that we desire to let Christ change us. But the problem is, there might not be any evidence to that change in our life. That can't be the case. I'm not sure what areas of life you might be holding on to and not letting Christ change, but I can promise you this. When you let Christ change those areas of your life, you will be far better for it. Don't just know about Christ. Don't just know how to live a life of integrity with Christ. Let Him actually change you.
That leads us to our third way to pursue godliness, and that is to be an example to family and to others. We've already seen that Paul was changed in an incredible way. He was now passionately living to be more like Christ. And as Paul was living in this way, he was pointing others to be living that way. In humility, be an imitator of Paul, who was imitating Christ. Have you ever caught your kids imitating you? Have you ever caught your kids making the same noises you make when you get angry? Or maybe in the foods that they like, or in the sports teams that they choose to like, or in the hobbies they want to pursue? Well, Paul's become an example of someone that we should imitate. Look at Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others, and have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So how do you do this? Are are you living life with an other's first approach to life? Are your kids learning to care for those around them because Christ ultimately cares for them? Or are your kids viewing others as inconveniences to the life that they want? Are your kids learning the importance of learning from the Word of God from watching you? Are they trying to learn how to balance two different lives? One that says, I love the Lord, and one that clearly only loves themselves. Are your kids learning the importance of being around other believers on a weekly basis within the church? Or are they learning that church is only for the times when it is convenient to fit into your schedule? Your kids will imitate you. Paul says it this way, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Friends, if someone imitated you, how close would they get to looking like Christ? Next, instruct your children in godliness. If you expect others to follow what you say, you better be sure that you're modeling the same thing. Are you using the times of correction to point your kids to live a godly life? Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So how will your imitation of Christ help your kids receive the instruction that you are giving them? 2 Timothy 2, 2, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Fathers, if there's not a time when you are regularly instructing your kids about how to live godly, you are failing in your desire to be a father who is pointing your kids to Christ. Friends, don't be there. Instruct your kids. Teach them. And then teach them to cultivate a heart for the lost. How are you showing others that they need to care for the souls around them? Philippians 3, 18 through 19, for many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction and whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. I believe one of the most effective ways to help my kids see souls is to teach them how to serve other people. When my oldest son was about five years old, our church has this harvest party that they put on here at the church, and you're supposed to dress up like a Bible character, and my son decided to dress up like a pastor. 
So he went and he got dressed up as nicely as he possibly could. He put on a suit, he put on a tie, he put on everything. And because he'd heard so many conversations around our house about the importance of serving others so that someday you may be able to ultimately have a gospel conversation about them, he made one slight addition to his outfits. He went and got a snow shovel. I remember that picture often. You see, in that moment, he understood this, that life was about more than whatever toy it was that he wanted. It was about serving others. Fathers, we are called, like Paul, to have a heart for the lost, to have a heart that shares the gospel, the heart to share Christ's purpose in all of our lives. Then, even as we make every effort to add to our saving faith godliness, and we put on every effort to add to godliness that establishes a proper view of God's salvation plan, and every effort to pursue Christ above all else, and every effort to be an example before our family and friends, well, we do all of this. Why do we do this? Well, because we're patiently waiting for the Lord. Why are we waiting patiently? Verses 20 and 21, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Do you remember at the beginning? We talked about after understanding the salvation process and our need for a Savior that we had to fix our eyes on the eternal things of life as we go through life. You know, someday eternity will become a reality for each and every one of us. And on that day, all the decisions you made to pursue your own exaltation will be empty and pointless. But all the little decisions and all the corrections along the way that have kept us focused on living for Christ will be revealed to be the best choices we've ever made. Friends, if you're here, pursue a life of godliness. Fathers, if you're here, lead your family to pursue a life of godliness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul whose life was changed so dramatically, and as a result of that, he passionately pursued after godliness. Help us to live our lives in this way. Lord, thank you for our fathers and thank you for those that are here today who see the importance of being in your word and studying your word and bringing your family around to church where they can learn about your word, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us as fathers, Lord, if we have areas of life where we're being distracted, Lord, to repent of those things and to turn back to you. Lord, I pray that you'll bless the rest of our time together today. In your name, amen.